the boards in front of the 200. Dr. Grayson, Sedestin are challenging and better loosen up on the extreme outside. Sedestin and Benedict have come away. They're fighting it out. Better loosen up on the extreme outside is roaring clear and better loosen up wins the Sajano. Sedestin second. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Pride's Easy Feed. Do any of your horses struggle to finish their feeds during a racing preparation? Have you been unhappy with the way they look on race day? Do what many other trainers do with those finicky horses and introduce them to Pride's easy performance by stimulating their appetites with Pride's highly palatable set recipe feed, you might find they're not leaving a flake in their feed bits. Correct nutrition helps racehorses to deal with the stresses of racing and training. It helps them to get that elusive win when they're in the right race, and most importantly, helps them to bounce back after the event. Pride's Easy Performance provides the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses get to the line while helping them to maintain inner health. Pride's Easy Performance, the complete nutritional feed for equine performance athletes. Any jockey will tell you there's no such thing as a good time to be involved in a race fall. But Hugh Bowman says his Shartin accident on November the 11th couldn't have been more untimely. He had only Zach Purton in front of him on the Premiership ladder. He was a certain invitee into the Longines International Jockeys Championship at Happy Valley, and he was looking forward to the upcoming international meeting at Shartin in December. All of those incentives were snuffed out in a heartbeat when a gelding called Touchelle suffered a catastrophic injury in the closing stages of the Panasonic Cup. Sadly, the horse had to be put down, and Hugh was rushed to hospital to learn that he'd suffered fractures to his right scapula and to a couple of vertebrae in his lower spine. Fellow jockey Keith Yun Min Lun, who was also involved in the fall, escaped serious injury. Thankfully, Hugh required no surgery and expects to be back by the end of December. He thinks it's about his 10th race fall and he can lay claim to quite a few broken bones, but he's the first to tell you he's been one of the lucky ones. He's also the first to admit that he's grateful for what racing has given him. Getting close to 2,500 career wins, about 110 Group 1s, 99 of them in Australia, placing him behind only Damien Oliver, George Moore and possibly Jim Cassidy on that elite honour roll. He's ridden a host of wonderful horses and one superstar. Hugh Bowman had 33 rides on the freakish winks for 32 wins including 25 Group 1s. Obviously, I expected to be calling Hugh in Hong Kong to conduct this interview, and I got quite a surprise when he texted me overnight to say that he's made a quick trip to Australia to see his mum and dad. And as I welcome Hugh to the podcast, he has only just arrived at the mudgy home of his parents, Jim and Mandy. Hugh, you must be weary, and I'm very grateful that you've taken the time to talk to me. 
John, uh, good afternoon. Thank you. That was a lovely introduction, but it, it's my pleasure. And I know you did chase me up oh, some, might be 12 or 18 months ago to come on your podcast and it, it just didn't eventuate. But here we are. Um, timing's perfect. I've just land, literally just landed in Mudgee from uh, overnight flight from Hong Kong. And ironically enough, um, Mudgee Cup, is on today, and it was where I had my very first race ride as a professional jockey uh, in mm. 1997. So there you go. Here we are. I assumed you, as many would, that you were here for the race meeting, that you probably had some guest capacity to fulfil, but that's not the case. No, it's not the case. Look, it's... Um, my plan was to have a short break at Christmas time, but given... This um, the the accident at Chartin a few weeks ago. It's sort of on the top of a three week suspension. Prior to that, it's sort of put me behind the eight ball a bit as far as the season goes in Hong Kong. So it's important for me to to get back to work ASAP. But you know, I need to. I'm just sort of waiting for the bones to heal at the moment, and I'll, I'll head back to Hong Kong next week and start preparations for a return to race riding, as you said, um, towards the end of de December. I'm planning a 23rd of December return, and, and that'll give me a few meetings before the new year, and, you know, hopefully by mid to late January I'll find myself back to peak fitness because it, it will take a little bit of time. Well, you, you must be feeling pretty well in yourself. You wouldn't be traipsing around the world if not that wasn't the case. No, of course. Well, look, I'm, I, I, a couple of broken bones, but I, ultimately it was, I was pretty lucky to get out of it, um, you know, as any jockey is when they fall with, with, with a few minor fractures, my scapula, which is pretty sore if I, if I, if I forget to take my pain medication, it does get my shoulders pretty sore. But fortunately, my lower back, um, as dramatic as it does sound, it, it's a little tips or wings mm. off your spine, if you will. And, um, you know, it's not near the, the discs or, or nerves. And the doctors have assured me that there's no chance of complications um, if I start to put a bit of pressure on, on myself in the coming days. But like I said, it's been three weeks tomorrow since the fall and and I'm feeling under the circumstances pretty good. Mm. Well, happily, your wife Christine and those two beautiful daughters of yours were there with you in Hong Kong to help you over the hump. How would you rate yourself as a patient? Uh, Grumpy? I liked a bit <laughs> yeah, well, I was happy this time because I, I was quite comfortable. I wasn't in, I wasn't in constant pain. I, I can assure you the day of the the day of the fall I was in pain, a lot of pain. But mm. um the next day the doctor came in to check on me and I was walking around the room and he nearly fell over. He couldn't believe I was out of bed. Mm. Um but maybe that's to do with the you know, uh, as an athlete, as a jockey, um, you know, you, you you maintain your weight, your fitness levels are you know, extremely high compared to your average human being, I'd imagine, and mm. maybe that helps with the recovery. But um, like I said, I, I, I've just got to give it the time. I, I, I was contemplating a rush back for the international meeting, mm. uh, which is next Sunday, but after 10 days I could see that I just wasn't – even if I rode that day, mm. which was probably feasible, 
uh, was I then going to be able to carry on and continue at full duties, and I just couldn't see myself being able to do that. So mm-hmm. hence the decision was made, along with the medical advice, of course, to, to give it some to give it the time it needs and also maybe 25 rather than <laughs> approaching 45. I might view things a bit differently too. But yeah. um, like I said, I've been fortunate in my career. I've had a, I've had a, I've had a few falls. So there's no doubt about it. I, I don't, I haven't kept a count. Mm. Don't see any need to go back and think about it, but I've had a couple of head knocks, um, nothing serious, but, mm. um, as you get older, you sort of start to understand the, or you maybe you understand when you're younger, but I think you have more respect of the consequences as you get older. It's called wisdom, <laughs> and it only comes <laughs> I, with I, age. I, yeah. I, I, if you if you if you ask Christine about that, I'm not sure whether I'm high up on the wisdom list, but <laughs> one day at a time. <laughs> Your girls, Bambi and Paige, are ten and eight respectively. And you tell me you were able to arrange a sister school enrolment for them in Hong Kong. So their education has continued fairly smoothly and having one another in the schoolyard at lunchtime must have been a big help to them. Yes, well, it certainly has, John. This year, last year, they were actually, in fact, at the same school at different campuses. So there's three or four campuses of the French International School in Hong Kong and Incidentally, one of the one of the most common questions for Christine and I is, what, what, why would you send them to a French school? And the reason for that was, you know, when they started school some five years ago, um, you know, it was it was in the back of our mind that maybe Hong Kong might be a, you know, if the opportunity arose, um, maybe a good move, you know, to at the back end of my career. And then, of course, COVID hit and. Um, you know, so there was, you know, and then we thought, well, we won't travel at all. But so there was thinking along those lines, you know, many moons ago about, and and that had a small influence as to why they they went to that school. But it was actually Tom Magnia mm-hmm. who had his kids there, and he he suggested it, which which um, prompted Christine and I to look more into it and. Yeah, it's been a really, really good move for us. The girls have had to work hard and with their language, but both speak fluent French and continue to do well with their learning. And I think by being able to keep in that familiar system for them in the move to Hong Kong has certainly helped. Mm. Do you have a clear recollection of that race fall? Happened in the closing stages, didn't it? It did. It happened at about the maybe the 100-metre mark, might even be the 75. Mm. Uh, but I do, I remember it vividly. I, 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 My head did hit the ground, but my shoulder, my right shoulder took took the brunt of the fall and subsequently I broke my scapula, fra- mm. undisplaced fracture. But And then the horse uh, hit me on the way over um, in the lower back, which caused that. So, mm. yeah, the horse, it was... Well, it's one of those things. I mean, I had a horse on, do a sim, under similar circumstances at Happy Valley about six months ago do the mm. similar thing. So uh, I was able to walk away from that, though, but it is what it is, and mm. we'll uh, move on. Yeah, it was a true Joe Marrera's decision to leave Hong Kong. 
influenced your decision to take up the new contract? Well, it certainly opened up the... Um, oh, I, th- I think without Joe there, there's certainly a, a smorgasbord of opportunity. I feel as though uh, with Zach and Joe there dominating the way they did for, you know, the best part of the last decade, you know, certainly the last five or six years at the very least, um, you know, I think it made it a little bit... I, I guess I was better off at home. That was my viewing. You know, I was mm. quite happy at home, and it wasn't as though it wasn't as though. And despite mentioning earlier that you know Christine and I thought about you know it might be a good opportunity to move over there later in my career, mm. um, good lifestyle change. But you know, it wasn't as though we were looking to go to Hong Kong. But the, the, I guess with the at the back end of COVID, the world was starting to open up again, and you know the. The, the jockey club made inquiries as whether I would go over for it on, you know, for a three month contract. And I, I discussed it with Christine and we sort of, we, we sort of a no lose situation because we're, we're very well established and comfortable at home. Well, we were uh, um, mm. in Coogee and my riding was going well. And I, when the opportunity came to go, we saw it as an, as, as an, you know, a can't lose situation. We yeah. went over there with a view of three months and did, you know, from day dot, uh, had a consistent flow of winners and the support base that I've been at, been able to secure over there is, um, been outstanding. Very thankful for that ride for what, you know, all the trainers, a wide range of owners and, you know, it just started to flow. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, we, we made the decision to see the end of the season. It, out of last year and of course we've now signed up for the entirety of this season so mm. um, for us now it's home and we're, we're, we're thoroughly enjoying it. You've turned 43 and Darren Biedman was the same age when he decided to wind up his career in Hong Kong. Is that place kinder to older jockeys? Well I found it very good for me in that um, the routine enables me to manage my weight on a very consistent basis. Uh, that's something that Australia didn't allow because of the change. I mean, you have your standard Wednesday, Saturday meeting, but then you have a lot of barrier trials, which vary on the days. You'll have varying race meetings. Uh, you have to travel interstate uh, on a regular basis, even more so, you know, even even five years ago, there was the set carnivals throughout the country. But the way with these pop-up races and mm-hmm. the way the programming is these days, um, you know, from week to week, you could be in a different state. And, and that travel takes its toll. And so, I mean, that's not why I left. I mean, the, the opportunity came to go for three months and we, it just fit for us. And, yeah. Um, so, but to answer your question, yes, I, I, I found it to be much better or much easier for me to manage my, my body and and my business um, for in the routine and the constant system that is provided by the, the mm. Hong Kong Hockey Club's um, roster. Yep. You had several relatives who'd been amateur jockeys so the genes were laying dormant in your case. Well, yes. Well, 
Well, I grew up, I grew up as everyone knows on on a, a you know, my parents are farmers, and my father Jim is very, you know, he's a horseman through and through. Uh, he's an outstanding polo cross player. Mm. He was an amateur jockey, as was my uncle, uh, my great uncle, and my grandfather. Mm. And even on my grandmother's side, um, you know, dad's dad's uncle uh, was a played polo for Australia. Um, I understand. So mm. there's a there's a huge line of, and he also, um, Bryden McFarlane, his name was. He was an outstanding amateur jockey as well. So mm. yeah, there's the genes there, but you know, I think the the time and the effort that my father put into developing horses to be there for me to ride uh, as a child mm. and having always having a horse good enough to take me to the next level, um, you know, as a, as an, uh, um, pony club rider, as an eventing, you know, not that we ever did it professionally, but, mm. uh, we were certainly, um, guided through many forms of horse riding from a very young age. And obviously I had the, a natural seat, the natural, hands i suppose it was very natural it's not something i ever thought about i still don't um it just came naturally to me i guess but my father put a lot of effort into having those horses for not only me but my sister as well to um to increase our level as we were ready to um go to the next stage i guess and you told me your only sibling sister kate was a very accomplished rider as she was growing up Yes, yeah, she she was, and you know it was it was put on us as children. A lot of cattle work, riding after school every day, and you know it's interesting now looking back on it that I have my own children, and I think about where I was when I was ten, as mm. Bambi turned ten on Saturday. So, mm. I mean, they would love to have had the opportunity to ride like I've ridden, and they ask regularly, "Can we ride horses?" and I did sign them up for the riding school in Hong Kong and I was politely told that there was a two or three year waiting list. So I just don't know how I'm going to manage that. But, mm. uh, but life is different for them as, than it was for me. And I, I would like to introduce them to Hort. They have ridden, of course, but mm. I mean, they're not going to take cattle down the road for three hours on their own like I was doing when I was 10 <laughs> or 11 years old. But no way. It's <laughs> a different, it's a different time of life and, mm. Um, that's where we're at. Mum and Dad sent you to the big smoke to attain your secondary education. Did you enjoy those days at the famous Scots College at Bellevue Hill? And just for the record, how did you rate yourself as a scholar? Oh, as a scholar, I had less interest than I did with in the sporting and activity sides. I, I would <laughs> say I was about average, middle of the road. Um, I could get away with but I don't think I gave my academic side quite the attention as I that I gave my <laughs> my sporting side and, and other areas. But I enjoyed my time there immensely and, mm. um, you know, formed some lifelong friendships. And I was I was third generation at the college, so there was a lot of history with our family there, and mm. which which I was very proud of, particularly at the time that I attended. But uh, I left there. I did leave there early. I left. I did first term year eleven. So, it, excuse me. I did not finish school because I had a burning desire to be a jockey and a professional, you know, a professional jockey. And 
uh, you know, it was decided, well, if I, if I finish school, then it's quite likely I'll get too big, which most people thought I would anyway. Mm. Um, so, but anyway, I, the decision was made. I did leave school and, and the rest is history, as they say. Many have forgotten that you began your riding career at the picnics. Your first barrier trial was at Trangy. Your first race ride was at Mungary. And your first winner was a horse called Slats at Wellington. And I think it was a pretty decent race. Well, that was the Wellington Picnic Cup. And it was run as a Corinthian because the picnic races were sort of uh, on the on the demise at that stage. I actually rode Slats two days before in the Come By Chance Picnic Cup and... Um, Fortunately, this is a podcast, so you you can't put up the footage to show those that are listening how, <laughs> um, let's say, how immature and green it looked riding out the finish at Come By Chance. But John London trained the horse at that time, and Slats was, um, yeah, prepared by John London, and he won. He, he subsequently won two days later in, in Dad's name at Wellington and I, I think it was a three or maximum four horse field mm. for memory and, and dad had two two of the two of the runners. He also I, I mm. can't think school kid I think the other mayor's name was. So mm. but it was a dominant win and Wellington Picnic Cup was the first taste of success for Hugh Bowman. Your enthusiasm grew and grew quickly, and finally you gained an apprenticeship with Leanne Aspros at Bathurst. Now, at the time, Leanne's husband, Bill, was dominating the riding ranks in the West. What a wonderful tutor Billy Aspros must have been for young Hugh. I was very, very fortunate, and Billy had ridden a lot for my grandfather, uh, Bruce Bowman, who had horses with with Neil Mully trained down there at Bathurst. And so my father knew Billy, had known Billy for, for many years. And, and fortunately with Leanne at the time, leading trainer along with Gaynor Williams, both both based at Bathurst. And she, you know, she was looking for an apprentice. And so the opportunity came to go there. And I, I, I have to give, you know, I credit Billy a great deal and I was fortunate enough to live with him for about the first six months of my my indentures, and mm. it gave me the opportunity to to see how a jockey lived. And and Billy was very particular in the way he managed his gear, uh, very proud uh, person, and very polished. And everything he did, he did it with purpose, and uh, he he did it precisely. And I, I was able to witness that and look at it, and and you know mirror that for one of a better word and mm. he, he was pretty demanding as well i mean he, he expected a great deal from himself and he expected a great deal from those around him mm. but that's not a bad thing as a young young kid and uh, i was um given that opportunity and and very very grateful for it because although i'd ridden at the picnics prior to having my indentures signed mm. by Mr. Shane Cullen in the offices at Orange mm. in uh, April of or April of 1997. Mm. Um, yeah, I'd never ridden or worked or, or really had anything to do with a with a racing stable. Um, 
with the exception of a week's work experience uh, at Ron Clinton's when I was in year 10. Mm-hmm. So that was probably where the – but, you know, after I did that work experience at Ron's, I, I think then the, the, the desire to be a professional jockey um, really started to burn. Mm-hmm. That's when the spark ignited. I think you were riding a gallop with Billy Aspros the day he suffered an injury that brought an amazing career to an end. I, I was. I was beside. So Billy, before I was, before I went there, he'd had a nasty fall at Orange, uh, which left, which he had a, a pretty significant head injury. And he was out of the saddle for some 12 to 18 months. Mm. But he was back riding by the time I started. And, and we were riding, well, I'd say I was about six to 12 months, was early, was less than 12 months, but six to nine months into my apprenticeship. Mm. We were galloping two horses on the grass side by side. Mm. The horse I was riding used to swing a leg out and uh, tripped him Billy's up. Ho- Billy's horse clipped its heel, mm. front heel. We were side by side. It was it was it was actually one of the simplest falls. It was a dewy morning. The horse went down and Billy skidded. Um, I didn't see much more of it, but yeah, that was the he he, he suffered another significant head injury, and that was the um, that that was the end of his career, unfortunately. So mm-hmm. I do remember that, and that was a it was a confronting time um, at that stage. I was only. You know, I was only there, like I said, six to nine months, and yeah, yeah, it was tough. But uh, but it's well, anyway, I hadn't thought about that for years, mm. John. And what a good rider he was, Hugh. You know, he'd hold his own whenever he came to Sydney, and on frequent occasions, Sydney trainers would bring him down whenever yeah, leading well, jockeys. I, yeah, I remember him going regularly to ride for John Hawkes in Crown mm. Lodge when I was in Bathurst, and. Yeah, he had a huge picture of Turradu above the fireplace, mm. uh, winning the George Main Stakes, and um, Turradu. While, 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 while the rest of the family were sitting there watching TV, I'd sit there and just stare at the picture in the hope that one day I might get the opportunity to win a Group One race. And, yeah, you've done. Um, yep. You know, I, I just, you know, at that stage, you just have so much ambition and so much drive and so many dreams and. Yeah, it's really it's really lovely to think back to those times. Leanne Aspros didn't train your first professional winner, and that was a mare called Scottish Emma on June the 9th, 1997, on their little narrow track at Gulgong. I think Bruce Bowman trained Scottish Emma. No, my father trained her. Oh, did he? Good. And she was, in fact, my first race ride as a professional mm-hmm. here at Mudgee. She ran third. Mm. I think then Dad took her to – so Dad trained her himself. Mm. Um, I think we went to Wellington and had, had another placing and Golgong is the closest race course to, to where I – well, the, the family farm. And, yes, yeah, 1,800-metre maiden class one, I think, for memory, and mm. she won with authority, so – it was about probably six or eight weeks after my first ride, maybe two months that mm. I rode my first winner, and and after that things started to um, to move along quite nicely for me. 
Mm. Well, your first winner for the boss, Leanne Aspros, was star host at Dubbo. He bolted in. He won by four. Yep. And he and sailed then, up. Yeah, and a couple of years later, uh, you got the opportunity to transfer to Ron Quinton at Randwick and you jumped at the opportunity. Yes, I did. And it was always my – so I had – when I started my apprenticeship, John, I had three goals. Uh, the first was to be the leading apprentice in the district my first year of riding, mm-hmm. which I did achieve. My second goal was to hopefully be leading apprentice in Sydney before I finished riding. Mm-hmm. And I thought if I, if I can do that and ride, ride till my apprenticeship's over, I'd, I'd be 21 or just short of 21. Mm-hmm. And I thought if I can... If I can get to be 21, if I can still be riding at 21, surely I can keep my weight till I'm 30. That was my, that was my vision, and uh, and my my third goal was, as I said, a dream, and maybe hopefully ride a Group One winner one day. Mm. So they were my three goals when I when I signed up. So you looking back to those days when you transferred to Ron Quinton, as you've just explained. You really didn't give yourself much hope of still being a professional jockey at 43 years of age as you are now. Well, I didn't give myself any hope because my my plan was to, you know, I was only a young kid and I had all the ambition and drive and everything that you have when you're that age. And, and But, but I... I I, I I did want to be good though. I, mm. I, I didn't go to Sydney thinking oh, I hope I make it. I went down there expecting to make it mm. as an apprentice. I'm not talking about you know where we are now, but as an apprentice, I went to Sydney expecting to be on top of the on top of the list and doing everything that I could possibly do to 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 achieve that. And um, so I, I guess. When I went to Sydney, I, I had a wealth of experience. I, I'd ridden over 100 winners in the country. I had two years of riding mm-hmm. under, under my belt. Um, you know, I wouldn't know how many rides I would have had, probably 800 to 1,000 in total maybe when I got to Sydney. And, mm-hmm. and I was very lucky when I got there because they changed, they changed the, the, the system of the apprentice allowance so I got to Sydney. I had three kilo claim in in the city. I had no allowance in the provincials and no allowance in the country. They changed the system to make it a three tier system. So you had country, provincial, city. So mm. I I got a three kilo allowance back at the provincials, which just opened the floodgates with the leading trainers. Um, a few of the leading jockeys weren't so impressed with the way <laughs> things were panning out for for them, but um, I remember, yeah. <laughs> it just gave me it just gave me great opportunity to to, to get good rides from the leading stables, and, and then that flowed through to the, to, to the city. Yeah. Um, that first year I got to Sydney, so oh. um, I was the leading apprentice at the time, and and, and Mitch Newman, who was the leading rider leading apprentice in Sydney the year before I got there and subsequently the year after because I finished my apprenticeship in April. So he had a few months under his belt to catch me and that's exactly what he did. But uh, having the two of us there together, we formed a fantastic friendship. Um, 
it was really, really special times with Ron and Margaret and the entire stable. It was it was really special and it made for a really good grounding. And Mitch and I were able to, com- you know, we're although we're competing against each other and highly competitive, I think in hindsight, looking back at it, it was a very healthy environment for us to be in. The first really classy horse you got to ride after coming out of your time was Exceed and Excel. You rode him in eight of his 12 starts. You won four, the Todman, the Up and Coming and the Roman Consul. Wasn't he a commanding horse to look at? He's, a, he's an exceptional horse to look at and he's he's gone on to do it not only on the track but at stud. He's an, he's an amazing stallion and now he's progeny coming through and he might be a stallion of stallions in, in in years to come. So we see Bivouac recently retired to the Dali roster and I'll be very surprised if he doesn't mm. put his stamp on his uh, on his progeny. But going back to then, he was, you know, Tim Martin, great friend of mine. He used to use Mitch Newman actually all the time mm. and he wouldn't give me much of a go. And um, then Exceeding Excel came along. He said, oh, I'll put you on Exceeding Excel. Mm-hmm. Well, Jimmy Cassidy was meant to ride it, but he was riding for Gay Waterhouse at the time, and she had another Redoubt's Choice cult, which I can't think of his name, but they mm-hmm. ended up clashing in the same race. So Jim had to choose. He chose the other one, and I got on Exceeding Sally's first start and subsequently won the race, and, and, and Tim, despite... Um, a lot of pressure from Mr. Moratus, who was obviously very close and for obvious reasons to Jim Cassidy. Uh, there was, I know there was a lot of pressure to to move me aside, but as long as I kept winning, uh, Tim kept me on and, and mm. we went on to win the Todman, Todman Slipper and... and Up and uh, coming uh, and the Roman Consul, yeah. My first, uh, he was my first Golden Slipper ride too, I think. Mm, I think he was, Hugh. We'll have a close look at your Group 1 record later, but for now, I should point out that shortly after the Exceed and Excel Association, you won your first Group 1. It was the 2004 Doombin Cup on a lovely horse called Defire for a trainer you respected enormously, the late Guy Walter. Yes, that was a... That was a career highlight. As I stated, you know, my three goals, two two had already been achieved some years prior, but I was now approaching 24 years old. Uh, I'd had I'd had a few Group One rides, but not many not many genuine winning chances. And you know, getting back to my weight, it's where I sort of got restricted. That some of these younger riders get great opportunities in the big handicaps with lightweight I wasn't able to do that because I was too heavy and of course I wasn't at at 21 22 years old I wasn't really favoured for the weight for age horses when Mm. you have the likes of Jim Cassidy Darren Biedman Corey Brown Lenny and Denny Beasley in the jockeys room Chris Muntz Brian Mm. York amongst others Mm. so it was hard to get opportunities Glenn Boss too was riding a lot for Guy at the time and yeah, I think back, and but I knew that I would be very loyal, and I knew that if I did come across a good horse for him, he, he would he would leave me on it, mm-hmm. and he he had the owners that would allow that to happen, 
And so when I did finish my apprenticeship, I made my way out to Warwick Farm uh, once a week. And I did that right up until maybe 18 months before guys' um, sudden passing. Mm. And he was, uh, I think, I think his influence on me as a rider, as as a racing person, a lot of the decisions I've made um, throughout my career, I, I thank Guy and his wisdom and and his counsel because I just I, I thoroughly enjoyed working with him, um, and yeah, I, I do miss him. Mm. Hugh, I'm going to rewind a little bit here. When you were with Ron Quinton a charming Irish girl called Christine Walsh was a member of the team. Christine had come to Australia to look after Dermot Wells' two runners in the 2002 Melbourne Cup, Media Puzzle, who won the Cup, and Vinnie Rowe, who ran fourth. Now, by the time Christine made the decision to return to Ireland in 2004, you and she had hit it off. You decided to follow her over and you actually flew out the day after you won the Doombin Cup on Defire. That's exactly right. So uh, Christine looked after Vinnie Rowe for, well, he, well, until she left Dermot World, which was in 2003, and she came to Australia backpacking. She actually flipped a coin because she'd been to America. Uh, she, she, she had planned on going to America because she worked at Dermot's for some seven or eight years. And as young as she was, she thought, oh, well, I'd love to get some international experience. And she thought, oh, when I get back from from Melbourne, when she brought out Vinnie Rowe for the Melbourne Cup, um, although once she was here, she was pushed off to Media Puzzle to look after him, who incidentally won the race, as we all know, famously. But... Uh, she went back and having been to Australia, she thought, well, I really like Australia. I'll, I'll flip a coin as to where, whether I go to America or Australia. So mm-hmm. I'm, um, my life is a result of a flip of a coin, would you believe it? <laughs> well, you stayed there for 10 weeks. You garnered a few rides. You rode a winner at the famous Fairy House track and you got to ride for some notable trainers. And then an amazing coincidence led you to a very productive stint in England in 2007. You happened to meet an English trainer called Mick Channon at the Test Cricket in Sydney, and he offered you a three-month arrangement in the UK. You accepted, you rode a good number of winners, including a stakes race at Newmarket, and you had a wonderful time. Were you better for the experience? I've got no doubt. I think every time I've travelled and ridden internationally overseas, whether it be um, for a week or, or a couple of months. It, I think I always, I've always come back, um, you know, a more rounded and a more accomplished rider and, and human being at, at times. You know, I've found that every time I've, you, you get out of your comfort zone and it brings the best out in you, and that certainly happened. Although I didn't go over with quite the same dedication and commitment when I went to Ireland, I was in my early 20s. It was more of a working holiday. But when I when a few years later when Mick offered me the job and, and Craig Williams had been to Mick previously mm-hmm. and had, had done exceptionally well 
and I just uh, I was introduced to Mick uh, by the former AJC or ATC chairman, Mr. David Hall, and we met at the cricket and hatched out a plan to go over for the English summer. And really, I, I think it was a real turning point in my career. It was where the pendulum changed from, in my opinion, being you know, a promising young rider to someone that can really um, do the job. I, I, I think it, I just matured. You know, I came mm. back a more mature, rounded um, rider and person. Yeah, we will just pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast. When we come back, we're going to quicken the pace, mate, and run through some of the great Group 1 winners you've ridden in a stellar career. Back with Hugh Bowman after this. Randwick history changed course early in 2022 when Racing New South Wales and the Australian Turf Club made a joint announcement concerning the renaming of one of the oldest races on the Randwick calendar. Time-honoured Villiers' first run in 1892 was superseded by the Ingham, named after one of Australian racing's most famous families. Prize money for the race rocketed to $2 million and the Ingham family immediately arranged for the occasion to become the centrepiece of a very important fundraiser. All monies raised through sponsorship and fundraising on the day will be donated each year to the Ingham Institute for Applied Medical Research. For many decades, the old Villiers seemed to signify that Christmas was not far off and the Ingham will carry the same message. Most of the top-line milers are between carnivals when the Christmas mile is run, but through the years, a few big-name horses have popped up. Easily the most significant was the champion Burnborough, who was a six-year-old before he came to Sydney from Toowoomba in 1945. He was beaten at his first Sydney start at Canterbury, but two weeks later he won the Villiers by a huge margin to begin a winning streak of 15 straight. It's unlikely a horse as good as Burnborough will ever contest the Ingham, but the race will quickly gain recognition as the Christmas mile that generates valuable funds for the Ingham Institute of Applied Medical Research. Our special guest is Hugh Bowman, who has just arrived in Mudgee on a flying visit uh, to his family. I'd love to mention every one of your Group 1 winners, but that's an impossibility. Let's fast forward to the 08-09 season when you got to ride a great filly called Samantha Miss for Chris Lees. You rode her in all of her seven wins, which included the VRC Oaks, a flight stakes and a champagne stakes. You told me once, Hugh, it took you a while to realise how good she was. What did you mean by that? Well, I was regularly asked at the time, uh, you know, is she the best horse I've ridden? And being a three-year-old filly, despite the fact that she ran a, a, a gallant third in the Cox Plate with Glenn Boss in the saddle, um, she, you know, I just couldn't bring myself to to judge her up against the good weight for age horses I've I had ridden, including Racing to Win, for instance, uh, Defire, who we mentioned and spoke about earlier. Um, but I probably didn't have the, the the maturity or the understanding of, you know, where these young horses lay uh, against the older horses. And I think upon reflection and experience, I, I think she's certainly one of the top 
top she's certainly in the top five horses I've ridden. Mm. And and it's unfortunate that she was um her career was cut short with injury as a spring uh, I beg your pardon, as an autumn three year old filly. Mm. And I've got no doubt had she have had that not been the case, she would have been she she would have gone on to be a significant player at, at for, for you know years to come. Mm. Well, the season in which you were riding Samantha Miss was also the season in which you won the first of four Sydney Jockeys Premierships. Lovely to have on your CV, Hugh, but I don't think you've ever worried too much about Premierships. If they happen, oh, they happen. Yeah, I, I was very keen to win it at that stage. Um, I, 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 I thought it was important and I thought I had the... I had the support to do it. I wasn't riding for the for the big stables, uh, Gay Waterhouse, um, John Hawkes at the time. I uh, wasn't getting the the free reign in in those stables, but but what I was getting from well at that time I think was when John actually decided to step away and there was a change in the guard. So a few things happened for me in that Darren Beedman uh, made the move to Hong Kong and he. He dominated. I mean, I was running second to him for two or three years and he was riding 150-odd winners and I was riding half that. So mm. the, there was a change in the guard and I had a great foundation with um, with John O'Shea, with Chris Lees and with Guy Walter. Mm. Three big stables, big enough that I could... You know, it was like it was it was a bit like having the backing of one powerhouse stable, and, and, and those three gentlemen were they they allowed me to work and you know within the realms of each other and and didn't stand in my way to sort of get, take the best rides, and so there's a lot in that because. You know, you can ride for other trainers and they're, they're not comfortable with you picking and choosing. But I, I built the, the, those relationships have been built over over a number of years mm. through my youth. And it was sort of now my time to step up and, uh, and you know, take the opportunity with both hands. And I, I guess it was just my time, you know. And I, I was very, very driven to win that premiership. Mm. And I, I knew I could do it. And... You say I've won four. I should have won five, mm. but I can discuss. One no. one year I was well in front, and uh, I think I was thirty in front of Nashville Willa. Mm. And I, I had a trip to Ireland planned to to spend some time with Christine's family. Mm. And Nash had been off injured, and I thought, well, uh, he was back. I thought, well, he's got to ride. I'm going to be back for five meetings. So there's another five he, five winners. I've He's got to ride 35 unanswered winners mm. to beat me. Mm. And so away I went, had a had a um, great time with Christine's family. And as I was looking up the results, every city meeting, Nash 4, <laughs> Nash 5, Nash 3, yeah. I think he rode 46 winners in the last month. Oh, and I and, and that, yeah. that, that itself was a great learning curve because it just showed that, you know, if, if you're going to compete at the level that we're at, that, yep. Then you cannot take the foot off the pedal. There are no ho no holidays, mate. There are no. There, there can't be. <laughs> no. and, and if if you want to do that, that's all very well. Yeah. If if you think you're going to um, compete and win consistently at the higher level, 
yeah. without your foot right on the bottom of the floor, um, it's just not going to happen. And that's how competitive it is. And, mm. uh, you know, I mean, it, it hasn't changed my life whether I've won four or five, but mm. at the time it was a very, um, a very swift and I don't think brutal is quite the right word, but it was a, mm. it was a, it was a, it was a real, um, sm- you know, I don't know how do I explain it. it was just mm. a wake up call. Yeah, that's a, yep, that's what it was—a wake up call. Hugh, let me wish through four or five horses that you won on uh, before I ask for your contribution again. You had two rides on, so you think you won one race on him. Here is a horse that went on to win five Group 1s in Australia and another five overseas. Sadly, um, you rode him only a handful of times. You had one ride on a horse called Reliable Man for an easy win in the Queen Elizabeth Stakes, beating Dundeal. He'd won the French Derby before he came here. He only had two runs in Australia before breaking down. He actually blundered near the line in the Queen Elizabeth and he was never seen again. He was a very special horse. He had a lot of time for racing to win. You've mentioned him already. You rode him in five of those wins, including a Group 1 all-age stakes. You loved preferment, who gave you three Group 1s, Turnbull, BMW, and an Australian Cup, and you should have been on him in the Victoria Derby too, shouldn't you? Well, I was suspended for that, so Damien, I think it gave Damien Oliver... It's interesting. It gave Damien Oliver his fifth derby, mm. and if I rode him, it would we would have squared off at four each. So it's a it's a funny old game, but uh, suspensions do cost cost you as a rider, and it, it's 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 a bit like falling. It's one of the hazards of the industry, and mm. um, unfortunately, at times you miss big ones. But uh, it's interesting you speak about reliable man and beating done deal. Because James McDonald was suspended and missed that race on on Dundeal, mm. obviously his regular rider. And, and when when his suspension came, I had a phone call from from John Massara to see if I'd be interested in riding him. And I had um, a commitment already with Reliable Man, who obviously I hadn't ridden in a race before because mm. he'd only had I think he'd only had one start in Australia at that point. And I rang Chris Weller, I'll never forget it, a Sunday morning. Mm. I rang Chris and I said, look, I can ride Dundeal in the Queen Elizabeth. Um, he's a dollar ten, And I just want to get your your gauge on that, your thoughts. Mm. And Chris was silent for an uncomfortable period of time. Oh. And he said, look, Hugh, uh, I'm not going to stop you riding it. Oh, um, I'll see you, what you mean. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll leave it to you. You let me know. Mm. Right, I hung up and I started walking around. We lived at Queens Park at the time. I started pacing up and down the garden. Mm. It's a pretty small garden, mind you, but round and round and round. <laughs> and I thought, and I thought about it. And I thought about it. And I thought about it. And I thought. I ride all of Chris's good horses. He's got, he's a leading trainer. I'm going to ride this other horse once, then James will be back on it, whether I win on it or lose on it or whatever. Mm. Not that I was thinking it would lose, I thought I'd just win. Mm. 
But anyway, I rang Chris back and said, no, I'll stick with you, Chris. I'll ride your horse. And and, and it was one of my favourite, like, that horse, mm-hmm. having won a French derby, it was it was one of the best feelings I've had on a race course, the way he let go that day. And it just goes to show, you know, I, I mean, I didn't think he'd beat Dundeal, but, you know, he's a superior horse and, and Dundeal mightn't have been at his best that day, but I think even if he was, he wouldn't have beaten our guy. Mm. Shootout was good for you. You won three Group 1s on him, a George Main and a couple of Chipping Norton Stakes. Hey, Hugh, here's an interesting statistic. There are several Group 1 races you've been able to win multiple times. The Chipping Norton could be the most notable. Seven you've won, four on Winks, two on Shootout, and one on Dan Lee. Seven Chipping Norton stakes. That's, I think, your best. I think it is. John, yes. I, I don't really keep count of those things, to be honest with you. I, I know mm. I've, won quite, I've, I've had a pretty good run in the ATC Oaks as well. Um, but Oaks and Derbies uh, all over. I, I've just I've sort of, you know, it's been my... I don't know, what would I say? It's been, you know, I've had a, I've, I've had great opportunities. I've only won one ATC derby, admittedly, but yeah. um, but a, apart from that, I've done specifically well in those young, middle to long distance. Th- three-year-old uh, classics. Three, three-year-olds, yes. Yeah, absolutely, and, yeah. And the- it's, yeah, and I, I enjoy working with those horses. I enjoy the development, and that's something that I do, I do miss now being living and being based in Hong Kong. It's uh, it's very much you don't really get the opportunity to develop a nice young horse and see it progress because they're already you know that even if they haven't raced they they're, they're already pretty well developed by the time they get to Hong Kong. So yes, they either make it or they don't. That's hard work's all so, done. Let me dash well, through. To a degree. Let me dash through a few statistics. You've won six George Riders. You mentioned the Australian Oaks at Randwick. You've won five of those. Daffodil, Bonneville, Sophia Rosa, Streamer and Unforgotten. If you add a Victorian Oaks and two Queensland Oaks to that, you've got a total of eight three-year-old Phillies Classics. Uh, The one Australian derby you won in Sydney was on Criterion for David Payne. Uh, You've won three Victoria derbies, Polanski, Sangster and Lion Tamer. And it must have been an anti-climax of sorts to win your only golden slipper in an empty house at a deserted Rose Hill in 2021. Usually when they turn for home in the slipper, they lift the roof off the grandstand. Um, Farnan was your ride there. Uh, what a brilliant, precocious two-year-old he was. He was an outstanding horse and... You know, that that was a case of sort of being the right spot at the right time. I was riding in Sydney. Tim Clark was his rider, and Tim went to Melbourne to ride in a Group 1. And here's an example of, you know, with these, I suppose it's not quite as evident in the autumn as it, as it has become in the springtime, but uh, Tim had a decision to make and went to went to Melbourne to ride. And, and I, I, I rode him, and I, I think it was a silver slipper for memory. Mm. He, he sailed up, and then I rode him in the um, – stayed on him then for the Golden Slipper. So 
it was a bit of an empty feeling in that, you know, I actually, I, I really felt for Tim because, I mean, like talking about developing horses, like he developed it up and then I just got it, you know, through through default to a degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, mind you, I was pretty keen to stay on him once I, once I did get on him, which is which is the industry we're in. But so there was that side of it, but also the fact that, you know, there was no one there. But I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I didn't need the crowd to for it to, to mean as much as it did for me. I mean, it, it's the... The golden slipper is the golden slipper. The golden slipper is the golden slipper. And yep. um, no matter which way you look at it, um, look, the crowd make it. And, and it wasn't until the COVID period was over and the crowd started to come back that I think, um, well, I can't speak on behalf of everyone, but certainly me, without that without that atmosphere, it, it did after time, it, it, it tended to lose the spark and the, the it tended to lose the, those big days were a little bit mundane, you know. You just didn't have the vibe or the energy or the or the expectation. It was just it just seemed like another day. Um, but that was the first meeting that was held behind closed doors. Yeah, we, we we flew back from Melbourne that 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 morning mm. uh, with the Melbourne jockeys on a private plane. So mm. that was the first day that there was no crowd. Mm. No, it was very eerie, very empty. But as you say, uh, there's only one golden slipper, crowd or no crowd. Huey, time's on the wing, mate. Let me dash through some of your Asian achievements. You had a fabulous run on a horse called Werther in Hong Kong for John Moore. You won a Derby, you won a QE2 Cup, you won a Chater Cup and a Hong Kong Gold Cup on Werther and you were placed in another four group ones. How do you rate him with the top Group 1 horses you've ridden at those distances? Oh, I've got uh, – he's up there, John. Mm. There's no doubt. I mean, I, I think he used to – well, he, I know he did. He used to bleed internally sometimes, mm. not all the time. And, and a couple of those Group 1 seconds, I've got no doubt, when I went for full full throttle, when I asked for top gear, he couldn't give it to me. And, and – and that's why. And I think he was an exceptional horse. Uh, he, he, he went to Japan and nearly won in Japan at Tarazuka Kanin. Um, and, and he beat the Jap- Japanese, who, who I rate as the best horses in the world. Mm. Um, he, he beat them uh, hands down in the Hong Kong Gold Cup one year. And I was riding him at, at the same time as Winx was champion horse of the year here in Sydney or Australia. He was champion horse in Hong Kong. Um, and so with those two horses, along with Chevelle Grand winning the Japan Cup, uh, that paved the way to be recognised as the Long Jeans. Best um, jockey of the year. Best jockey in the world in, to, in that year. So yep. it was a conglomerate of riding the, you know, the best horse in Australia, the best horse in Hong Kong, and hmm. amongst others. It wasn't just those two, but... Um, yeah. When you're on those sort of when you're when you're on these horses, you grow in confidence and you know everything you touch turns to gold. You you, yeah. you don't go out there overthinking, underthinking. You just go out there with confidence that you can do the job, and the horse won't let you down. Uh, win, lose, or draw, it's not even in your vision. It's just doing your job. And um, yeah, it was 
it was a just fantastic to ride. Yeah. Um, you know, these amazing horses all, all at the same time. Yeah, it was funny. I remember at the time I got the feeling that you were not only puzzled by this honour, Longines World Best Jockey of the Year, but I thought you looked slightly embarrassed. Well, I wouldn't say I was embarrassed. I think that re- it's a very nice uh, accolade. Accol- accolade to have. Mm. Um, but I, I just don't know that I agree that one jockey's better than another. Um, yeah. Well, you know, certainly, you know, and I'll say that in that I, I believe in my riding time, Ryan Moore is the, is the best jockey in the world. That's what I think. Um, but... You know, if you give me a horse, you know, and I've competed against him and with him, he's just a, he's just a, the most humble, lovely person you'd ever meet. Mm. Christophe Lemaire is another one, but where do you draw the line? I mean, how do you rate one better than the other? I mean, mm. uh, form's a funny thing. These guys have stood the test of time. Uh, if you go back to yesteryear, you have Johnny Murtagh, Mick Canaan, Kieran Fallon. Frankie de Tory, of course, goes without saying. Um, you know, and I mean, I could list off another 20 and still leave someone out, but yeah. Darren Beedman was the writer I looked up to as a, as a youngster. Mm. He was, he, he and Shane Dye just dominated when I was in those influential years of school mm. in my early teens. And I was a keen, you know, I used to love going to the races if mum and dad came to Sydney for the weekend. And Darren was just, the guy I looked up to, along with Billy Aspros, who we spoke uh, at length about before, and uh, th- that was it for me. And mm. it was my, my eyes were opened up once I got to Ireland and England, you know, in my early and mid twenties. But yeah, it's um, you know, Douglas White's another one, fifteen-time oh, yes. champion jockey in Hong Kong, and mm. it's interesting that Zach and I were riding for Gay Waterhouse uh, together, you know, in in our early twenties, and he chose to go to Hong Kong and he's just done so, so well over there. And I chose to stay in Australia and our, our careers have basically paralleled. He, he's done super over there. I've done very well here and we come together towards the end of our twilight of our, our career and finish off together. So mm. who knows how many years we've got left in us, but hopefully we can battle it out a bit longer. Hugh, the Wink story is recent history and firmly planted in the minds of racing fans the world over. You've answered the predictable questions a million times over and I'm not going to put you through it again. But just let me simply say, we often hear the expression that somebody was in the right place at the right time. The tension mounted steadily as Winks began her freakish winning sequence. I have no doubt you were the right jockey for that mare in that era. You always look relaxed and in total control of the situation. If there were nerves, it didn't show. Well, thank you, John. Yeah, that's very kind. And I think there's a sort of an element of truth in that, you know, uh, she, she came along... At, at the right time for me, I was old enough to cope. I had the experience, I had the confidence, I, I had the youth. Um, it was just the right time. So, 
very special horse. Uh, obviously, Chris Waller, who we've spoken, well, not at length about, but, you know, I mean, mm. the, 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 the respect that we have for each other then and, and now um, goes without saying as far as I'm concerned. And I, I think we're able to, you know, as things did develop and get, and the tensions did grow and the expectation got beyond anyone's control, we we were there for each other, and we we had our own support crews as well to a degree. But you know what? How much support can someone give you? I mean, once I was on the horse, it was it was it was me and her. Um, but we 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 had a great foundation with the ownership group. I, I think they were just so consistent, so solid. They they never never once uh, tried to tried to interfere or even give advice. They were just there for, they just came for the ride, as did I, as did Chris. Chris did his job, I did my job. And as complicated as it, some might have thought it seemed from the outside, mm-hmm. on the inside, I just had to do my job. I didn't have to make her do anything. You know, I knew she was going to do it, and particularly towards the end. She was just... You know, I guess it went through different stages of expectation of our own expectation of what might be and then trying to manage everyone else's expectations. But when you strip it all back and take all the emotion out of it, um, I just had to do my job. I just had to be fit and healthy, get on her and and and, and not make a mistake, really. And, and I didn't have to do it. You know, I, I didn't have to make a win or run. She was just going to do that. Mm. And to, to, to have the opportunity to work so closely with with such a, a magnificent athlete, uh, the way she was managed, the way she managed herself, it was just an absolute privilege. And of all the goals and all the hopes and all the desires I had as a young jockey, um, sleepless nights in, in my bedroom as a, as a 10-year-old, 9-year-old, 11-year-old, hoping to win the Melbourne Cup one day. Do you know what? All my dreams were answered um, in riding winks, and I think it would be very selfish of me to, when I finally do decide to um, hang the boots up, I think it would be very selfish of me to to say, I wish I did this or I wish I did that. So... Mm. If I never rode in another horse race, I would finish with no regrets. And I'll say that hard on my hand. Mm. Beautifully said, Hugh. Winx's final day at Randwick will never be forgotten. She even had the audacity to give you a head butt and a split lip <laughs> after the race. That was, but... my, that, that was my fault, not hers. Yeah, you, you stuck yes. your chin out and you copped it. <laughs> but you were totally oblivious to the flow of blood. And... When the dust had settled and the euphoria uh, had levelled out, I couldn't help but get the feeling that it must have been a huge weight off your shoulders, as good as it was. Um, there's no doubt. I think all of us. It was By that stage, John, it was exhausting. Uh, as I said previously, the, the expectations were, were, were really beyond reality and... and she just kept delivering, and I, I, I personally think, you know. And again, if you took all the emotion out of it and all the attention, and, and 
you gave her another preparation in the spring. I don't see that she would have let anyone down then either. But at what point, you know, should should she have gone overseas? That's another common question. Every time Ascot's mm-hmm. on, oh, wouldn't it be great to have seen her there or the Dubai, you know, the Shima Classic in Dubai or... Yeah. Do, do, do you know, but at the end of the day, the right decisions were made because if she did anything else, it wouldn't have been the story that it was. And... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am guilty occasionally of thinking I would love to have ridden her up the in the Queen Anne at the mm. at the first race, the first race at the Royal Ascot meeting. But you know, um, it, it, it just wasn't to be, and I don't think anyone regrets that. I mean, if she did that, she wouldn't have won four Cox Plates, and she just delivered, as I said, um, every time she stepped out, uh, she. She delivered for us and and every one of her fans, and it was just an absolute privilege, the whole yeah. thing. You, I had many more points to raise with you, but we've already set a new podcast record. In conclusion, sure. may I say it's been a fantastic journey for you, from the exhilaration of galloping a pony full pelt around a paddock at Dunny-Doo to piloting valuable thoroughbreds in elite company on some of the world's most famous racecourses and the unforgettable experience of winning 32 races on one of the greatest mares in racing history. I think I'd be safe in saying you'd do it all again, wouldn't you? <laughs> If I had the opportunity, John, that's why we're here. So, we'll, um, yeah, I'm very proud of it. And we're, not, we're not done yet, but we're certainly at the pointy end. So, hopefully, we can find another nice horse or five to pilot before we finish. <laughs> but what will be, will be. Hugh, you've had a nine hour flight from Hong Kong to Sydney. You had to hang about for a few hours for a connecting flight to Mudgee. You must be out on your feet, but you have seen fit uh, to honour me with a very lengthy podcast interview, and I am extremely grateful and very appreciative of your professionalism. Lovely to talk. You too, John. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Hugh Bowman on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Do any of your horses struggle to finish their feeds during a racing preparation? Have you been unhappy with the way they look on race day? Do what many other trainers do with those finicky horses and introduce them to Pride's easy performance by stimulating their appetites with Pride's highly palatable set recipe feed, you might find they're not leaving a flake in their feed bits. Correct nutrition helps racehorses to deal with the stresses of racing and training. It helps them to get that elusive win when they're in the right race and most importantly, helps them to bounce back after the event. Pride's Easy Performance provides the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses get to the line while helping them to maintain inner health. Pride's Easy Performance the complete nutritional feed for equine performance athletes.